The Race to Ricky Sanchez podcast is brought to you by Cornblow and Cornblow, the official law firm of the Process LL Pavorsky Jewelers, where Rights to Ricky Sanchez listeners go get go and get engaged. Seat Geek, get ten bucks off your first order with promo code RTRS and Kinetic Skateboarding, get nine point one percent off your first order with promo code Dave Silver. Big show today, Mike. Big. One of our one of our most uh, popular shows every year. Our uh, the official scout of the Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast, um, Elon Vinokurov of EV Hoops and EVHoops.com will be on. I will ask him like three questions and then Mike will take over and ask him the next 45 and ask if I'm still there at the end of it. Then we'll, right. then we'll wrap it up. And we have to talk about the enormous trade yesterday between the Lakers and the Pelicans bringing Le, Le, uh, Anthony Davis from the Pelicans to the Lakers. So we'll talk about that as well. Without any further ado, here is Run the Jewels. We are the murderers pair. Dead with the jail and we murdered the murderers there. Then with the hell and discovered the devil delivered some hurt and despair. Used to have powder to push. Now I smoke powder to push. Holy, I'm burning the bush. Now I give a fuck about none of this shit. Two runner over and out of this bitch. Welcome to the Rice Ricky Sanchez podcast. I'm Spike Eskin, along with a guy that owns the next six first round picks from the Los Angeles Lakers. That is Mike Levin. Hello, Mike. Good morning, Spike. We are into it. The season is over. The season has begun. So the the offseason has really begun now that the trade that everyone um, had been talking about for the last year, it seems like the we'll do a quick around the league with their Smith and we'll start off with the uh, with the big trade and maybe talk about how it affects the Sixers. The Lakers trade um, Brandon Ingram, Josh Hart, Lonzo Ball, the number four pick. And then four consecutive either first round picks or pick swaps Swaps. starting starting in 2020 um, with the uh, with the Lakers for uh, for Anthony Davis, your your gut reaction to the trade and then your think about it after a day reaction to the trade. Oh, I mean, I think it's the right move for both sides. I think David Griffin did a good job of getting, you know, Every, all of the Buffalo that that, uh, that the Lakers have to offer. Um, the Lakers deciding to keep Kuzma instead of like four swaps or something is uh, curious. But, you know, they now have two of the best players in the league. They complement each other pretty nicely. And if they can go get a... I know you don't like Kemba, but if they can get Kemba in free agency, that's a really fun thing. Meanwhile, New Orleans, I think, could make the playoffs <laughs> next year. I love, I don't love uh, Brandon Ingram, but I love Josh Hart, and I love, uh, I, I think Lonzo is a really nice fit with Zion. That's going to be just like really fucking fun if he can stay healthy. Um, well, they're not going to make the playoffs. I, I think mean, they could. Unle- I think they could. Not, un- not unless they change something. I mean, how they didn't make the playoffs with Anthony Davis. Yeah, I think Zion's going to be better. <laughs> no, I think I think eventually it'll be better. But <laughs> I think it'll not be better at first, but I think, I think... The comp, there's like this defensive potential there. If they want to, if they want to trade for, to try to like orchestrate a Bradley Beal trade for four, uh, somewhere right. around that. Uh, like, like I would do if like four and Ingram for Bradley Beal. If the Wizards are stupid enough to do that, like please, like holy shit. Um, 
there's a lot of fun stuff they can do. I like wish I was a Pelicans fan because that's a really fun place to be. So I think uh, the, the biggest question when you talk about what they traded is how poisoned the well was on Anthony Davis, um, given Rich Paul's like you know public declaration, right. um, you know like what the and if if it was so tough that the other offers weren't that great, then I think this, it's, it's funny, I was talking with Matt Del Rio, the Liberty Ballers guy yesterday about the trade, and my first inclination was, well, let's talk about it like from how we talk about all of these assets from Sixers land. And we're like, well, Brandon Ingram's not that good and is gonna need to get paid. Um, Lonzo Ball, maybe okay, whatever. Josh Hart is a role player. Um, and just let me, and then the four pick, we say it's a three player draft. And like my first instinct it's a, is, it's well, a one player draft. yeah, right. One and then two and then the rest almost, it seems like. Um, and then I'm like, well, you know, I, I don't know. They, they didn't really, but then when you think of when it finally came out that it was pick and then swap and then pick and then swap, um, I think there is, look, the Lakers had to do it uh, right. given how risky free agency has been for them when they thought it wasn't going to be. They needed to do it. And it, I think it's an interesting lesson about leverage in that you don't really need more than one team to have leverage. You really just need the pl the player, right? Mm -hmm. And I thought it's a, I think there is potential for this to work out for both. I think there's almost no potential for it to work out poorly for the Pelicans, right. unless the Lakers become like a dynasty or something. Um, and I think then, there is... Even then, yeah, I mean, right. it's still, it's still right. all worth the gamble. Like, I'm not an Ingram guy, um, but people, Kevin O'Connor fucking still loves him. We'll right. Mar marry that guy. Sharp. Um, yeah. Oh, Sharp still likes Brandon Ingram? Yeah, Sharp still... Well, it depends on... Sharp still likes Brandon Ingram depending on what context you're talking about Brandon Ingram. Yeah. But if you challenge him on it, he will say that he likes Brandon Ingram. Sure. Yeah. I mean, Brandon Ingram just does not fit on that team. Like, you want that, that him moving... Right. Like, that ball moving around, Zion, Lonzo swinging it, Drew. I mean, fun stuff. And Ingram just, like, slows the ball down and just, like, everyone just watches him, like, try to m muscle his way into the lane without any muscle. <laughs> it's just very... It all length and just like bumping into people. Yeah, uh, he's not as athletic as he looks like he should. No, be, he's definitely I guess, not. He's you know, definitely not. I, but, he, I but he, people still like him enough, and I would try to, f I would try to flip him immediately if that's if that's possible. Yeah, I, I think my my guess is they look at this and they probably like explore the market on both Ingram and Ball and that pick to be better now. My guess is New Orleans doesn't want to be. And the, the interesting thing about having those picks is that it's sort of a hedge against not being terrible. And you're like, well, we have two chances every year at the lottery, um, theoretically. So yeah, I think it works out. I think it works out fine for both. But I do think there is some Nets Celtics potential, um, depending on how this works out. Um, my, uh, I guess people have asked how this affects Jimmy Butler. I, I would be, not only would I would be shocked if Jimmy Butler turned down 5190, shocked, I would be even more shocked if he chose to go live in LeBron land. I just, it does not seem like a Jimmy Butler thing to do. Um, yeah, they to also, be like they overshadowed also just need, they just really needed like a guy who can hit shots off the catch. And Jimmy is yep. not, yep. <laughs> as we saw, nah. weirdly right. and antagonistic to shots off the catch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before we get to Alan, let's do our Willie Green Apple Podcast five star review. We are at 2,495 on the way to 3,000. Because there's no AU this week, let's make the Willie Green Apple Podcast five star review sponsored by Kinetic Skateboarding, the only skateboard shop you need. 
locally owned right on 202 in Wilmington, Delaware. I was down near Connecticut today. Um, your spot for not only skateboards, but sneakers, you know, uh, Vans, Converse, Nikes, and skateboards and gear, all that stuff. KineticSkateboarding.com. Get 9.1% off your first order with promo code Dave Silver. This comes from Jimbo22. The subject line is, Mike loves asking himself questions for himself to answer. That's right. Is this, is this my favorite podcast? Yes. It's the only one. Has J.J. Redick ever gotten a loose ball? No, never. Will the foam flatten? It certainly won't. Does Mike love asking himself questions and then answering them? He sure does. Love the pod. Keep it up. Five stars. There can't, we go. Can't disagree with that. One of our most popular podcasts every year around draft time is one Elon Vinokurov of EV Hoops, who hopefully can hear us and is on the line with us right now. Elon? All right. Let's do it. There he is, Mr. Elon Vinokura of evhoops.com. Do you have a, a, a Scout um, a scout U coming up anytime soon you'd like are, to promote? We are going to teach one class this summer, but um, just one. It's going to be a crash course, and if people are willing to take it, we're going to be offering it online, so you don't have to just be in the Philly area. Uh, so, yeah, we have one Scout U class, limited availability. We'll be teaching it in the month of July. And uh, I, we would be remiss if we had you on and didn't ask for updates on, first of all, um, is Wesley Share still with you? And if he is, how tall is he now? Um, and how is he doing? Is it legal for you to work a 16-year-old more than 16 hours a week? Ilan, give us an update. Yeah, Wes is still with us. Um, Wes is the best. Uh, he's about 6'4", but he plays like he's 6'1". Uh, does not play big. <laughs> Loves shooting face-up mid-range three-point shots. Super inefficient player. But... Uh, you know, Wes is the best. Um, he's, I think he's going to have, you know, a really interesting career, whether it's in basketball or potentially even politics. Uh, he's getting oh. involved in that. So, you know, we support Wes wholeheartedly in his future. And Wes is still a core member of the team. Well, a, I, I'd oh, be ahead. remiss if I didn't ask about Marquise Chris. How is he doing? <laughs> um, does he have a career in anything other than basketball? And, and do you feel responsible one way or the other? <laughs> don't, I definitely don't feel responsible, but I do feel like I missed something with him. Um, didn't take into account enough his immaturity, how you know green he would be for the professionalism of the league. Um, you know, there's a lot there that goes into that, and red flag players in general. And you know, how do you learn from that moving forward? How do you adjust the benefit of the doubt you give to 18 year olds um, who might just be youthful versus immature? I think there's like a a real line there, and I think it's something that I spent a lot of time thinking about because of you know, Marquise Chris in general. Definitely sold off all stock. I don't have any real faith that he's going to make me look smart at this point. Um, that's just something we have to learn from. And yeah, I mean, Marquise Chris isn't that good. He's probably not going to be that good. And a lot of that's due to the fact that he's immature and he was drafted into a situation that didn't really allow him to mature very quickly. You're a sweet guy for even answering my dickhead question. Well, and, and he's still young, right? He's 21 now. I, I think, think I might have to now buy Marquis Chris stock so that I can then pivot to then <laughs> yep. making fun of you when he gets good. <laughs> you're, you're more than welcome to do that. Um, I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, it does, I mean, look, he's still in the NBA. He could have been out of the league by now, which would have been horrible. Um, but he's still in the league. It's just a matter of, is he ever going to reach even like 60% of his upside? And I, I don't right. think it's going to happen. Um, and then is Pavorsky still with you guys or is he just TBT now? No, Pavorsky's still helping us out. Great guy. I love Jake. Um, when we brought Jake on, I really didn't know what to expect. You know, I mean, he didn't really have a ton of scouting background. Um, but Jake's been great. He's a sharp learner. Uh, I always joke around that he's like the second fastest writer on the staff behind myself. 
Um, cause I, I can bang out a profile in like 45 minutes and Jake's the only guy that's even close to that pace, probably because well, of his writing background. We call him one take Jake. He does. Don't worry. He doesn't work very hard on it. That's why <laughs> I, I taught him Jake. everything I knew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's the best. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a big Jake fan. I think he, his ceiling is sky high. He can, I always say this, like Jake can do whatever he wants to. It's just a matter of like what he wants to do, you know? Um, so when we have our, uh, our scout people on, and we've done this with you every year, um, what was, from last year's draft, from 18, what was the one thing that, that stuck out that you got most right and the one thing that you got most wrong? Well, in terms of wrong, I mean, that's always where my brain goes first. Um, I was personally way too hard on Luka Doncic. Um, I just, I looked at that league, I looked at the player, I thought, slow, not an athlete, playing in a league that's slow and not athletic, and you could argue whatever you want about how strong the ACB league is, I was still of the belief that it's just a slow and unathletic league. So the, his weaknesses weren't really put to the test at that level. And I was just concerned at how realistic his upside could be given that. But, you know, I, I'm, it's another learning point for me in the sense that 18-year-olds who are wildly productive, sometimes you just have to give them the benefit of the doubt. And you have to say, this guy's winning, he's productive, his basketball sense is off the charts, who cares the fact that he you know, plummets the eye test and his, he just can't, he's not gonna get on the court and look the part right away. So that to me is a learning point. Um, I also wish I liked Jaron Jackson more. He felt to me like somebody that was overly theoretical, like everything was, this is what Jaron Jackson could become, but not enough of it was, this is what he is right now. And I just, for some reason, struggled to see what that looked like in the short term. So those are two guys that I wish I liked way more. Um, in terms of who I was right on, I mean, we had eight and one. I don't, I'm not going to take a victory lap on that. I mean, I think it, we were slightly higher on him than people settled in on. And I think he had a good rookie season. Time will tell if he's going to fix the mistakes that he, you know, he has defensively and his warts and his flaws. We loved Jalen Brunson. That was a guy that we had just outside the lottery. And I remember saying to people... He's going to do so well that he's going to make Dennis Smith Jr. expendable. And that's kind of what happened. So I'll take a local victory lap on Jalen Brunson. I think the guy's going to play in the NBA for a long time, and he's going to be a rotation player. He's not just going to be just some third-string point guard. Uh, smart. Smart stuff. I've made me feel smart because I put Luka and Jaron Jackson one and two, so that's fine with me. Uh, I, I'd be remiss, and I'm yelling now because I am uh, – <laughs> Quashing any emotions. And, and by the way, M Mike would be remiss if he, that is, that is how he will preface I'm everything. I'm going to be remiss this entire he, podcast. It's a yeah. really, it's not even a big board, Mike, it's just remiss, remiss time. Yeah. Mike's whole life is avoiding being remiss. That's so right. he's going to, yeah. This is the most remiss I'll be uh, <laughs> if I didn't ask because I want, now that he's gone and we, we asked you about him last year, um, what lessons can you learn from everything that happened with Markel Fultz? There's so much to unpack there. Um, I know. You know, like, like we entered the year, and I think I issued that, that similar question to our staff. And a lot of people, not even just our staff, but scouts in general, try to take the angle of who could have seen this coming. Like, you can't anticipate that someone is going to forget how to shoot. And so I think you, that there were warning signs that we should have paid attention to. The free throw shooting percentage, um, the fact that he didn't really make those around him better, the fact that he wasn't a mature kid in college, by no means, uh, didn't really show any leadership, didn't really show any, you know, gravitas with teammates. 
I don't think people really went to bat for him from a I like playing with this guy standpoint. Um, and I remember watching him in high school and thinking, if I knew nothing about this kid, I would not think he is one of the best high school players in the country. He has no on-court presence or personality. And I always find that concerning. And I thought it was concerning then, but then you fast forward to how productive he was at Washington and how smooth he was and how you know athletic he looked and the fact that he could be a two-way force and he was evolving as a point guard because when he was younger, he was more of a shooting guard. The I guess you could say the narrative and the highs were incredibly exciting. So for me, a takeaway would be you know, you, you can't just settle in on a guy's three-point shot because it looks right. You have to kind of give it sometimes a little bit more scrutiny. Maturity matters, kind of returning to what I said about Marcus Chris. And the people around him matter. And that always has been the case, and that always has mattered. But I think we should have paid a little bit more attention to in the people that were around him, um, how reliable he was in the pre-draft process, and what you were seeing as warning signs instead of brushing them off and saying, like, oh, this is this kid's flying in late or, you know, he's been working really hard, whatever. Instead of making an excuse, maybe you try to dig a little bit more into the hood and understand why you know, things are happening the way they are. Well, do you think, and I sort of think this happened with Fultz. I, I, I remember when, uh, when I watched his, uh, when I watched the highlights and when Mike did, Mike and I did our YouTube big board. And I, I, like, I remember telling him that there's something that like did not, pop when I watched the highlights. And I sort of wonder if there was a little bit of, he was definitely good at Washington for sure. But, I, and I wanted to ask how much you think group think and sort of like this consensus that develops, um, that, that in, ends up influencing what people think because that consensus was already there. And do you think that it all developed with faults as he sort of became the guy um, with without any other guys like sort of popping off the page either, but how much of that was like a group think? I think group think is a thing. It absolutely is. I also think narrative is a thing. And what I mean by that is like, late bloomer, you know, uh, didn't make varsity one year, got better, like was not the number one ranked guy his entire career in high school, shooting guard that became a point guard. Like all of these things help build up a player's stance. I actually find it interesting that you're, you're saying you watched highlights and something didn't pop um, because you're not the first person to tell me that, but I would have assumed it would be the reverse. People would watch highlights and get excited about them and then watch them in a game and say, you know, why aren't they winning? Why isn't he a leader? Something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know what that would be. I mean, I think narrative is a thing. I think um, groupthink is a thing. And we often find one guy that we put on a pedestal and then we end up nitpicking the other guys to kind of keep that guy there, whether that's subconscious or not. Or not. I do think that that happens. We take a break from Mr. Elon Vinokurov, who's going to sit right there as we talk about our sponsor, L.L. Pavorsky Jewelers. Mike, big news this week in Pavorsky land as Missy Pavorsky, who if Jake is always 12, then Missy is still nine, uh, graduated high school. This wow. Week. Isn't that crazy? We've that been she's doing like, this podcast for too long. Way, way too long. That uh, children have grown into adults during the pod. So congrats to uh, to Missy, the, the biggest, uh, I would say, combination Rebel and TJ McConnell fan in the, uh, in the universe. It's been a very busy week with L.L. Pavorsky Jewelers as uh, he hit... <laughs> 
135 rings sold to El, sold to rights to Ricky Sanchez listeners. And just when you start to doubt that they're actually real, I had lunch with uh, with Godner and Shil Kapadia the other day, and uh, Bodner stopped by LLs afterwards and met I think number. 132 or 134 or something. So he claims that's a real, not like a crisis actor, like a real person. Bringing Godner into this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. And not giving him a cent. Not one cent. The, the reason everyone goes to LL is because he sells the best jewelry at the best prices and he's like a good dude instead of an asshole. He's not going to pressure you or anything. He's just going to get you like exactly what you need at the right price. You walk in there, you're you're dealing with like one of three people. No, no, salespeople hovering over you or anything. You got to go to LL. If you uh, want to buy an engagement ring or um, or want to ask him about his his graduating from high school daughter, um, send him an email. Meh, you know what? Just the engagement ring. Send him an email. Uh, go to llpavorsky.com. You can call him 215-627-2252. Tweet at him at llpavorsky. The store is at 707 Walnut. For every podcast, LL makes donations to the Providence Animal Center and Coded by Kids. LL Pavorsky Jewelers. Always number one in your big board. Big boards are coming. And now back to Elon. So I'm, I'm really interested, especially this year, in it seems like there's a really clear divide between guys who are like kind of a blank slate with like a ton of skills and maybe not the productivity or the experience that you want, and then guys who are like not super athletic, but just have a ton of intelligence, or like can't score in like crazy ways, but still impact the game. And it feels like there's a really like clear line of demarcation of these are the guys the smart teams pick, and these are the guys the dumb teams pick. Hmm. And I, I I wonder I don't know if it's, if it's just this year or not, but how how do you sort of like you know I got. Ty Jerome, who is all all like skill and uh, and intelligence, versus like Kevin Porter Jr., who is all tools and a lot of baggage. Like, how do you even go about ranking one over the other? Just those guys, not those guys in particular, but in that in that like theory. Well, I think you have to take upside into account, and then you have to consider well, how real how realistic is the upside. And you know, Kevin Porter is a good name in that sense. Um, I would almost toss a guy like Bo Bo into that conversation right. and compare the two. So, like Bo Bo versus Kevin Porter Jr. Like, what's precluding those guys from reaching their upside? In Bo Bo's case, I would say it's does he love the game? Does he want to work hard? Uh, does he care to be the best possible version of Bo Bo on a basketball court? Or is he just happy once he gets into the league and he's already kind of experienced celebrity and so getting into the league and having more of it is only going to satisfy his need and not necessarily drive him to then reach a level of being like a max contract player, an all-star. I, I think something like that has to be taken into account. With Kevin Porter Jr., you look at the situation, right? He went to USC. Uh, they did not expect him to be the type of star and prospect that he was. They didn't expect him right away to be as talented as he was, and they didn't expect him to receive draft attention as quickly as he did. And now you have a guy that coached at Florida Gulf Coast who's dealing with a kid who is now 
you know, highlights are everywhere. Twitter's going crazy. He's challenging these guys to be maybe the fourth or fifth prospect in the draft. That was a conversation at some point during this year. Um, and I think that's a lot for the kid to handle. And I think that's a lot for a coach to handle who isn't anticipating that to be the case. And so then, you know, he had the injury, he had suspension, he was coming off the bench. But I get the sense that he's an immature kid. He's not a bad kid. He's got people around him that aren't ideal, but a lot of these kids have that situation. And it's about how do you kind of remove the people that aren't helping him and put him into a situation where he can be the best possible version of himself. I think they're both complicated situations. Bull Bull feels like a situation I've seen many times before and doesn't always really, it pretty much never ends up where it works out the way you'd want it to. And Kevin Porter Jr. is one where it's a little bit more complex. I think you have to strip away some of the layers and some of the things people are saying that maybe didn't get the most out of him. Um, and I think you have to figure out, well, how can I put him in a position to reach his potential? It's actually an argument I've had with a lot of guys on our staff where I consider him someone that I would play a point guard right away. People think I'm crazy. And my rationale is if you play him at two and he's playing off the ball, he's not going to know when his next touch is coming. He's not going to know what his role is all the time. He's going to get shot thirsty. He's going to throw up shots quicker. He's going to ruin offensive flow. If you let him play with the ball in his hands, he is more open to passing the teammates, making the right read, not just kind of playing the Dion Waiters role. And I think also from a coaching perspective, you can get through to him easier if he's playing point guard and you have that coach to quarterback relationship and you're saying, hey, I trust you to run offense. We trust you in general. Let's work on this. And I think that versus, you know, listen to your point guard out there. He's going to dictate your touches. I think it just opens up a better highway of communication and getting through to this kid and getting him to believe in you just as much as you believe in him. And that's why I would actually play a point guard early on, whether that's what he becomes long term. I don't know. But I think it's better for him long term than if you play him at the two and he just goes down the Dion Waiters pipeline. Now, a guy like Ty Jerome, yes, a winning team is going to get him and you're going to hope that he's Matthew Delvadova. And that could definitely happen. But you also have to understand why he is where he is on the draft landscape, because he's going to get to the NBA and he's going to be one of the slowest and most unathletic people in the league. Granted, I just talked about how Luka Doncic is slow and unathletic and Ty Jerome is coming off winning a national championship. One kid is 6'5", one kid's a big 6'8". It's different. One kid's 18 years old coming out. The other kid's, uh, you know, a third-year junior. So I would give him the benefit of the doubt, and I would take a chance in Ty Jerome, but there's a reason he is where he is. And I think he's probably going to hang around. He's going to find a role. All those things are true. But look at Del Vadova. Like, when it's, when it's off, it's off quickly, and he's just not playable anymore. I think Grievous Vasquez is another guy that I compare – Ty Jerome too. He was really good when he was good, but then when he's bad, there's no margin for error. He's not an NBA player anymore. So that's why he is where he is in the draft landscape. Yeah, for sure. I And those are all obviously uh, points that I almost entirely agree with, but in the sense of like when you're going to teams and saying like this guy over this guy, it's it just so much about what they're looking for. Like if the, the Sixers wouldn't draft, I mean, it, it, maybe they draft Kevin Porter Jr. if he falls to 24 and just say like we'll get we'll get guys that can help uh, in the second round and then uh, take a swing on this guy and hope in four years he gets good. But there's so many of those young guys that on a good team, they're just going to get buried and they're second contract players anyway. So they're like, you know, almost it's just it, it doesn't make sense to, to even consider them because like there's a quote from Elton Brand 
Um, and I said I told this to Kevin O'Connor when we talked to him. But they're looking for older players, defensive-minded players, players that place a premium on shooting and spacing and shooting. And it just seems like they want guys that can come in right away, and they don't have time to develop these 18-year-old kids that you know don't know if they like the game or what position they're going to play. And so I, I just wonder how you can even sort of differentiate. If are you guys? Do you guys have like a? Is, is the bill on you guys like we're we're upside guys. Like we we want to we want to find the stars in the later part of the draft, or or is it like we can do both that and and find you the role players that are just going to step in and be Malcolm Brogdon? Yeah, I think it has to be both. If it's just one, then anybody could do this, right? Like like you and I could sit down and have a couple beers and just list every guy in this draft from highest upside to lowest upside, walk away and say we feel pretty good about this. And that sounds right. like, and we're going to do that now. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but. Uh, I think that you have to take everything into account. Even like, you know, when I talk to a team, I might look at a player. I don't want to say a specific player's name. I don't want to say a specific team. But I'll just say, if I'm talking to a big city team and the player maybe is from nearby and has red flags, I'm less likely to endorse that player for a big city team that he lives near. It's just like something like that has to be taken into account. Um, If you're talking about a guy like Bull Bull, Obol might make more sense in a smaller city where there's less distractions, there's less to do. He's further away from home. You know, like a situation like that has to be taken into account. Now, on the flip side, DeAndre Hunter, right? He, on a higher end, fits what you're talking about. Does DeAndre Hunter make sense for a team that is looking for the rebuilding and they're looking for cornerstones and building blocks? I'm not so sure. If you put him on a team that maybe has one young guy that they say, hey, we feel good about this young guy moving forward. We need we need more young guys to build our foundation on. Does DeAndre Hunter move that needle? I don't know if he does in the short term. Maybe in the long term when you get your guys in place, you're happy you have DeAndre Hunter around. But a lot of these teams just have different priorities. Some of these guys are star hunting, the way Brett Brown said. But it's in a much more serious way where it's if we don't find stars and we're just putting out young players that aren't very good, we're not going to have a job in a couple years. And so I think sometimes you have to find stars and then you get into a point where you're pushing players down because of their risks, their red flags, their injuries, things like that. And you get into this like pocket I often see in the first round where you have a couple guys that you're lower on than the market value because of red flags or injury history, but you can't really stomach pushing them any lower, but then they're still above the Ty Jeromes of the world who are the guys you say, I like this kid. That's why he's probably in my first, because I think he's going to stick around for a long time. But I can't put him above these other guys when their ceiling is so much higher. And so it's not black and white, but sometimes you get into a situation where, yes, yeah, ceiling is the tiebreaker, but there's a lot more that goes into it than that. Well, and, and when you're talking about mostly ceiling, obviously the, the equation is is that you know less about whether they are um, likely to achieve it. it. It does seem like in recent years there has been, and maybe it's because so many of the top players that are coming out are so young that um, that almost I, I think we underestimate a little bit the amount that a 21 or 22 year old can get better. Uh, like I think it, it's maybe swung too far um, and and increased value because uh, so many of the players are so young, increased value in players that can contribute more quickly. Uh, because as Mike said, calling him a second contract player, that with so many guys, your first three years, you might not get you might get stats, but you might not get a winning player out of them. Well, I think it's you know, it's tough to I, I think we're still trying to understand. And I say this with everybody 
how much value do you place on a prospect who you know very quickly what they are? And that doesn't mean like I know what their upside is. It can just sometimes mean I know this guy's an NBA player. Like I refer to the time that a guy gets into the league to the time where you understand what he is and what you have in him, that that mystery years that we call like the fret years, because you're worrying about, you know, should I make this guy available? Is he going to reach his upside? Is he going to become a rotation player? Does he fit what we have? Like, that's a very stressful time. You're fretting about the prospect you drafted. You don't feel good about him yet. Like a guy like Gilgis Alexander, he by no means has reached his upside. And we by no means know what his upside is at this point. But he's already out, out of the fret years. You know you have a piece. You want to keep that piece. You're not worrying about him anymore. And I think you want to find guys that don't live in the fret years for eternity. Like Austin Day spent the majority of his NBA career in the fret years, even when he was like on his third team. Because teams probably thought, can we be the team that figures out Austin Day? And I think the longer you spend your fret years, the more, you know, the team that drafts you isn't going to see return on investment. You can't really get anything for the guy anymore. His value keeps decreasing. And you just kind of walk away and you say, I'm probably going to get fired for this pick if I took him really high. And in the inverse, you can draft a guy who is out of the fret years very quickly, but it's in the opposite direction. You know right away, this guy is not going to reach his upside. We have to sell him off. And that's, you know, it's almost just as big of a problem. But I think that's something we don't talk about enough. And I think it has to be discussed. Because the sooner you can understand that you have somebody in a piece, the better you feel at, from an evaluation standpoint moving forward. Are you trusting your own process to evaluate players? Do you know what you need moving forward as a team? You're not making that guy available. All those things help you become a better organization, I think. Mike, do you want to get into specific guys? I feel like I'm, I have so many guys. I'm so excited to talk about this. <laughs> well, can I ask you about one guy before we get into the, the lower in the draft Go guys? Go for it. Sure. Um, I, I don't... I, um, I looked at a, I didn't look at a ton of mocks, but Darius Garland looks much better than it seems like most people rate him. He seems like below Zion, he seems like as good as those guys to me. Um, what do you think of him? Well, wouldn't you say he's ranked most places in the top six? Oh, I guess. I, I saw like six through eight, I guess. I, I didn't see him everywhere in the top six. I, I think that's where he'll probably go. Um, I think if he doesn't go six, um, he goes seven. But to me, like, he's not going to fall past Chicago. Um, okay. But in my opinion, I actually think Kobe White's a better prospect. So my argument against Garland is I think he's receiving a lot of benefit of the doubt for not playing more than four games. I mean, yeah. he played in his fifth game. He got injured very quickly. So I'll, let's just call it four games. Like mystery and box theory. Exactly. Yeah. And, and like people compare him to Kyrie because Kyrie had a similar situation. Not because their games are similar, because I don't think that they are. Like if you watch him against USC, and I hate taking a ton of stock into four games, but it's all we have at the college level. If you watch him against USC, he really struggled against their defense. He struggled against their size and their length and their athleticism. He got swallowed up inside a lot. And a lot of the passes he tried to make in traffic are like a small quarterback unable to see over the offensive line is blindly tossing it. And to me, he missed out on those, you know, those years where he could have been learning how to play point guard around other highly, you know, highly accomplished players, highly capable players and against good defense. And now he's going to get to the league. And I think he's going to struggle if he's asked to run an offense. Now, if he goes to a team like, you know, Chicago, he doesn't have to totally run the offense right away. They have other pieces. A guy like Wendell Carter Jr. can help, I think, in his ability to play make a little bit. If he goes to a team like Phoenix... He doesn't have to do that either because a guy like Devin Booker 
Some people think he's a point guard. I don't, but he can play a lot of point guard, and he's had to, you know, this this far in his career at necessity. But to me, the upside with Darius Garland is that he can be a guy that plays point guard a lot of the time, and I don't know how realistic that is when he's missed out on all this opportunity. He doesn't have great size. He doesn't have great speed. He's more of a change of pace guy. He's a polished guy. He's a footwork like, like guy. Kyrie. I mean, doesn't doesn't a lot of this like like scream Kyrie or no? Kyrie's handle, in my opinion, was always like borderline electric, and now it's one of the right. best of all time. In addition, like we talk a lot about how good his handle is and how good Kyrie, in my opinion, one of the big things about him coming out was how good of a shooter he was, but we didn't put enough stock into how good of a finisher he is. His layup package is unreal. Like he could finish from any angle with any window. His touch is, is superb. I don't get that sense from Darius Garland. To me, Garland is closer to like the... I would say like the DJ Augustines of the world, um, a guy like Mario Chalmers on a lower end, a guy that could come in and shoot, but like I don't trust him to run my team. And like in that sense, he could have a similar fate to like Brandon Knight, where he comes in, you're hoping he's more versatile than he is because you don't trust him to play point guard right away, but he has no tools or traits to check out off the ball. And he's not, you know, super quick like a Jason Terry was. So to me, it becomes concerning, and especially when you look at, like, Brandon Jennings, who missed out on an opportunity to, like, run high-level offense before he got to the NBA, got to the league, had a lot of bad habits, and that definitely capped his upside. I think a lot of those outcomes are possible. Now, the thing here is Darius Garland's a great kid. He's super charismatic. People love him. People gravitate towards him. Father played in the league. That's always a boost in your favor. I think he's going to get it, and I think he's going to ultimately stick, but I just don't think his upside is realistic, especially at his size. And I think had he played more games in college, he might have been exposed a little bit. I don't know if Vanderbilt would have ended up winning regardless, and they were atrocious. Their coach got fired. And also, I think he benefits from something that we don't take into a lot of account, which is he was the best point guard in the high school class that didn't have a lot of good point guards. And if he was the fifth-ranked high school point guard and then he got to Vanderbilt and only played four games, I don't know if we would be having this conversation. But because he was the first-ranked point guard, it speeds up his trajectory to the league, and we're forced to talk about him because there, is, there was nobody else, and I think it's blinding. It doesn't mean he's bad. It doesn't mean I don't have a you know a top-10 grade on him, but I don't love Darius Garland. I'm concerned by it. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> getting into it. Um, right. Let's start out. I've just got a bunch of guys that I think are – not all of them are necessarily similar players, but um, – I just want you to compare guys and see who you like more, theoretically, with a tailor toward the Sixers. If you can, okay. if you can put yourself in that mindset. Um, let's start with you know the Sixers obviously need some shooting. We'll see if JJ comes back. Let's start with uh, if they're available at twenty four. Tyler Hero versus Cam Johnson. Oh, that's a good one. Um, I have Cam graded higher just from a pure board standpoint. Um, you know, the biggest obviously thing with Cam is like, can he stay healthy? His track record of injuries is terrifying, especially when you consider this year was the first time you ever really saw him healthy and even moderately athletic on the court. Um, but he's he's a really big-time shooter, one of the best in this draft. This team needs shooting, and he defended better this year than I've ever seen him defend in his life, and I think a lot of that is finally getting healthy. Um, I do think he's like one injury away from like falling apart completely and like a house of cards. It's That's kind of scary. Sounds like a sixer. But I don't pretend to be a doctor, and I didn't see the injury impact him this season. So this year version of Cam Johnson, I think, makes more sense in the Sixers. 
got to make sure he's healthy. Tyler Hero, we talk about him like he's this elite, big-time shooter. Yes, he shot incredibly well from the free throw line, small sample size. But from three, he's not some 40% three-point shooting guy. Didn't do it in high volume either. He's good. He's not great. And guys like this need to be great. And then the ancillary stuff can take, you, know, you can take into account. The playmaking ability, the basketball IQ, the underrated athleticism, kind of willing to defend. Those things then start to matter, but they don't mean anything if he cannot be an elite shooter. And I'm not sure he's an elite shooter, and I don't think he's going to get into the NBA and ever really look the part. I think his body is very limited. He has no real wingspan defensively. He's probably going to be attacked. He's got to be a big-time shooter, or I don't know who, who he is. I don't think he's as good as Luke Kennard. I certainly don't think he's Landry Shamet. He might just be closer to Nick Stauskas. Mm. Let's move on. Uh, guys, I love, by the way, you asked him with a Sixers slant, and he he, hit us like, with he, it. he did it up. Yeah. Even in the comparisons, Absolutely. he did it up. So I that was well it. done. We will take a break. Earlier, we, we talked about one of our sponsors who has a daughter graduating high school to one of our sponsors who has a brand new tiny little child that is Cornblow and Cornblow. Uh, Adam Cornblow, of course, the official law firm of the process. Mike, I was thinking about this. If he not only has him to support, right, mm. and a wife Cornblow, but now that he's got another like baby Cornblow that he's going to have to pay for college for and food, most likely, he's going to have to work even harder in, at his cases, right? Because he needs to make even more money. That adds up. It does. You know, more people, more money means good thing for you. Um, I don't want you to get injured, but if you get injured now, it seems like a prime time as L.L. Pavorsky Jeweler is the, not L.L. Pavorsky Jewelers, <laughs> Cornplow and Cornplow, uh, Adam Cornplow, the official boutique personal injury law firm in the Delaware Valley. Been around for 40 years. Cornplow's, uh, Cornplow hasn't even existed as long as Cornplow uh, and Cornplow has uh, been around because his parents started it. He runs it with his mom now. Cornplow's all over the place getting some of the biggest medical malpractice results in the Delaware Valley. Uh, but huge also any results. Huge results. As big, um, as big as all the trades Danny Ainge never made. That's how big his results are. Um, medical malpractice is a specialty, but really any, any injury, Cornblow is there for you. It doesn't cost you anything to talk to a Cornblow. Uh, if you think you might have a case, give him a call or shoot him an email. No cost. 215-576-7200. Ask for Adam. Or you could just go to lawyersfortheprocess.com. Adam Kornblau, the official law firm of The Process. And now back to Elon. Uh, yep. Moving on to guys who might not be available at, at, uh, at 24, but uh, with the possibility of, of trading up or something. Um, Virginia Tech's Nikhil Alexander-Walker, who is Gilgis Alexander's cousin um, and, and former teammate, versus uh, Kentucky two-guard Keldon Johnson. So I don't think Nikhil will be there. There's no chance. Yeah. Um, but they, they could trade up for him. Um, I think Keldon probably goes top 20, mm -hmm. though I don't have that kind of grade on him. I think he's not really good at anything except for spot-up shooting, and it that's the best thing he's at, so it's all relative. It's not that he's an awesome spot-up shooter. It's just the thing he's best at. Um People talk about him as a versatile player. I think he has no versatility whatsoever. He is a very limited player. He tries really hard, and his his makeup is great. People rave about him. He's the kind of kid that just believes in himself a lot, works really hard. And in that sense, 
to me, that's why he is where he is, because he killed the pre-draft process. People want to bet on somebody that they trust. And from a makeup standpoint, they trust Keldon. But I just don't know what he's good at. I think he can get into the league, and I'll keep it Sixers. He could very easily just be Justin Anderson. And, you know, I was at, um, I went to the NBPA Top 100 camp uh, a couple of days ago, and they have a lot of guys coaching there who are NBA or former NBA players. Greg Monroe was actually there coaching, and so was Justin Anderson. And Justin Anderson was, like, super into it. And I was watching him, and I, I kind of elbowed somebody, and I, and I go, that could be Keldon Johnson in five years. He's at the NBPA Top 100 camp. Everybody loves him. He's super into it. But he's not a really good NBA player. So I would take Nikhil. He's just got a lot more to him. Super kind of creative player in the sense that, like, if you really wanted to get funky, you could utilize him in a, in a variety of ways. He could play some pseudo point. He's not a point. He could post up and play make out of the post. He, you could play him at the high post. He's really smart. Doesn't have a ton of fluidity. Not really bursty at all. Athleticism is lacking. He's probably going to struggle to get by guys, but he's going to be really good with ball screens. He's going to defend as best he can. I think the swing skill for him, like many players, is going to be the shot. It's never going to look right. His arms are a little bit too long, but he's capable. And I think he's going to get to the league and quickly prove he's more skilled than people realize. It's just about finding a role for him. Yeah, for Nikhil, he's not Shea. He's, he just doesn't have the the level, like the wiggle and the just the control of the game. But he's a good passer. I, they used him at Virginia Tech at the high post a lot to pass. And I, I thought that he's just he sees the court really well. Um, and I believe in the jump shot. He just like hits um, at, at various points points in the game just hits um i see a little gary harrison Keldon johnson maybe the just visually um but he's much more like kind of blocky and, and doesn't have the fluidity uh athletically to to like move around the way that that gary did i'm a big gary harris fan so i'm sort of just hoping that that Keldon can become that but i agree that uh between those guys i'd take i'd take Nikhil. um let's move on okay i want to stay in the in the first round range if these guys are not the similar guys at all, but if Matisse Thibel, who is a, obviously a, a Sixers analytics, you know, t- draft Twitter darling, uh, if Matisse Thibel and Grant Williams are both available at 24, two guys that I love and who will very likely be in my top 10 when I do the big board in a couple of days, um, who do you take for the Sixers and why? That's your best question, uh, definitely so far. Uh, I knew you were going to ask me about Thibel. That was like that was the Vegas favorite for a guy Mike would ask me about. Of course, yeah. Um, I would take Thibel, but it's close. I like both a lot. Thibel to me is the guy where if you believe in his jump shot, then he has to be a lot higher than where he's being mocked, and that's a big if. If you look at like his monthly shooting splits, it was like twenty eight percent, then forty percent, then like twenty nine percent, then thirty eight percent. He just bounced back and forth. And I think you have to really break it down mechanically, and I don't think there's anything really wrong with it. So it's about coaching him up, getting him reps, getting him to kind of know where his spots are in the arc and own those. Um, I don't know that he's ever really going to have a ton in the ball skills department. He's not really a comfortable dribbler. He doesn't have much shake. He can run fast, and he's, he's got long strides, but the ball doesn't always keep up with him when he's being challenged. Um, but he's a great athlete. He runs a sub-five-minute mile. I think he's going to get in and immediately defend He's super disruptive. Mm-hmm. Coming up with comps for him, it's like, I'd love for him to be Danny Green, but that means the shot's got to be really good. I'd love for him to be a 6'5 version of Robert Covington. Same question mark. So I, I think both of those guys are in his wheelhouse of potential outcomes, but that means you really believe in his shot to develop. And what's exciting about Thibel is he's just like that one shot away from being a starter for the entirety of his career. 
Um, obviously, it's coming from a zone. It's essentially the Syracuse zone. Mike Hopkins came from Syracuse. That's what they ran at Washington. Um, you have to go back into his underclassman years to see him play man defense. Right. There's going to be some concerns over the fact that he closes out a little too aggressively, and you're going to have to slow him down in that sense. He does hunt, splash plays a little bit. But I get the sense that the league's moving more towards guys that are disruptive versus guys that lock down and guys that can switch versus guys that are LeBron stoppers. And so I, I do think Thibel fits where the league is heading in that sense. You just have to clean up some things. Grant Williams, you know, it's how do you not bet on a kid who has accomplished what he's accomplished when he's essentially the age of a sophomore and he's been a three-year college player, incredibly productive. You could make a case he was the national player of the year if Zion and RJ didn't exist. Um, you know, huge reason why Tennessee was as good as they were. I think he's just going to get it. I think he's going to figure it out. I think he's going to understand what the role needs to be and morph into that. He's going to have to become slightly unrecognizable from the way he played in college, which was essentially straight four. Um, but I always also thought he was 6'5". I thought the school height listing was totally off. And then when he measured in Chicago at 6'7 with shoes, I texted the staff and I said, okay, so Grant Williams is 6'7". I have no idea what to do with this information. I need to think about this for three days. Like, it just totally changed the eval because you always thought six five four man needs to become a three, still undersized for that blocky wrong body type, etc. But I think you'll figure it out. It just might not happen right away. It might take a couple years. But that kid's going to play in the NBA. He's going to be a rotation player. It's just going to take time for him to adjust his game. And if, if you're looking for, if you're the Sixers looking for guys that can fit in somewhat right away, that can just fill a role in the way that Chamet did in some respects. Uh, I mean, you're looking for the those high-level, think-the-game type guys, right? For sure. And I think, you know, Grant is definitely that. Uh, Feibel, I wouldn't say, is a high-level, think-the-game guy, but I do think he has a really solid role-player IQ. Mm-hmm. He's not coming into the league thinking, I'm going to be a star. I'm going to be Kawhi Leonard. I'm going to be Paul George. Like That's not on his radar. I think he's thinking, I have a role. I'm going to fill it. I know who I need to be. And I think you're never going to have to convince him to buy into what the swing skill is. So... For him, the roadmap's really clear. It's just like, do I do I trust my team's ability to coach up his jump shot? And I don't think it's broken, so I think that's fine. Um, and then it's just about cleaning him up a little bit, defensively packing on some weight to him so he can be a little bit more versatile. He's lean. Um, but yeah, you want guys like that who have some sort of nuance to their game, some intelligence, and defensively he certainly has it, and Grant has it on both ends. All right, I want to take a break from the... I'm about, to di- I'm about to dive deep into the second round, so get ready for that. But I want to take a second, because I, I don't think I talked about this with Kevin O'Connor, and I just want to, just for the, the more casual fans listening for the draft, I want you to tell me why R.J. Barrett isn't Shabazz Muhammad. Hmm. Well, I think he's a, he's a lot more accomplished at the age. I mean, Shabazz was a guy that was, like, highly touted, dating back to earlier as a high school and was a really prolific high school player. But it didn't feel like his resume was the resume that R.J. Barrett boasts. I mean, the, the success he's had with Team Canada, the success he had at Montverde. He's also actually the age of a freshman, whereas Shabazz was like a 30-year-old freshman. Right. Um, I, I think he's also somebody that it's he's in this really weird spot, right? Because he's super accomplished, and yet he's kind of really raw. Like, his footwork is clunky. His dribble needs a lot of work. His setup moves are not tight. There's a lot to his game that needs cleaning up. He's like the inverse of Tatum coming out in that sense. Tatum was just so polished. RJ's kind of messy and, un- and unorthodox. And the weird thing is that he's worked with Drew Hanlon, and that's still kind of an issue. So 
that makes you, I definitely wonder like what's going to change and how quickly will it happen to get him to be polished. Um, but I do think what makes RJ someone you want to bet on is he's really comfortable in situations where other people are not comfortable on the court. He's comfortable finishing off of the wrong foot, finishing with, you know, a weird angle towards the rim. Like, and he has the mentality that like, I'm a killer. I'm the best player on this floor. And he's got the infrastructure around him with his dad. Steve Nash is a godfather. Like, this isn't a guy with bad people around him. It's the exact opposite. And so he's going to, I think he's going to trust people that try to push him in the right direction from the front office to the coaching staff. Um, It's just going to be about who he lands with, who the players around him are, if he's going to butt heads with them on the court. Um, But I think if you're betting on him, you're betting on his polish to catch up to the competitiveness and the the, accomplishments that he's had to date. And that when that happens, maybe you're talking about like a Jimmy Butler type. If he, wait, if he, okay, go ahead. I, if, if New Orleans drafts him at four, to pair, he with won't Zion, be there, but it's it could happen. I really don't want. I'll blow up the Smoothie King Center. I it's get him away from Zion. He already like fucked up too much. I cannot watch him take terrible shots as as Zion's like just the best player on the court everywhere. I don't think they're going to keep that pick. I hope not. They shouldn't. But yeah. Um, one more question about a guy. I think he's first round. We talked about him with KOC, but he is moving. I brought him up to KOC, and he's moving just so briskly up my personal YouTube big board, which we will debut with Mike's big board this week. Um, Dylan Windler, uh, could you talk me out of him? Because he looks like he's good. I'm, I'm in on Dylan Windler, so there's no, okay. no reason to talk you out on that one. Um, I like him a lot. I think shooting's obviously at a premium. He can do that. Um, really good basketball IQ, like super smart player, made Belmont the national you know, tournament team. Um, I think he's going to get to the league and he's going to be able to pack on some muscle when he's in an NBA weight room. I think he's willing on defense. He's an awesome off-ball mover. He cuts hard. He's an underrated athlete. People look at the way he played versus Temple and the way Nate Pierre-Louis was able to kind of get into his jock and make him terrified to dribble. And my argument to that would be, He's never going to be guarded by those types of guys in the league. Like Nate, Nate Pierre-Louis is a collegiate stopper, and NBA teams are not going to put stoppers on him. They're going to actually hide guys on him. So he's never going to have to worry about the 6'3", Marcus Smart, you know, or on a lesser level, like Kyrie Thomas guy guarding him. That's not how a team's going to, going to check him. They're going to hide someone on him. They're going to put their reddicks on him. And I think in that situation, he's going to run around. He's going to shoot over smaller players who are weaker defenders. He's going to cut. I think he's going to be a really nice NBA player. I like him better coming out than a guy like Justin Jackson from North Carolina, who I was never really a fan of. Yeah, I'd agree with all, I'd agree with all that. He's going to be up on my board also. I had a question before I get into the second round stuff. Um, what is your thought on... So the Sixers obviously did not have a playable backup center in the playoffs. We've talked about that time and time again. Um, I think Jonah Bolden can be that guy, and he's certainly still in a very cheap rookie deal. But ultimately, they're probably going to have to get a guy in free agency that serves that like playable backup center, whether it's a Kevon Looney type, Ed Davis, Robin Lopez, whatever. Um, what are your thoughts on, because the Sixers have five picks, they'll probably sell one for 20 bucks and maybe draft an international guy. But what are your thoughts on not drafting a center and just loading up on 3 and D wing types or, or guys who can do more rather than just be a one position defender? Uh, and and also have to develop pretty quickly to to get there because I'm I'm leaning towards not drafting a center whatsoever and and hoping that Jonah gets there but or or just doing free agency for that. What do you think? 
Yeah, I wouldn't draft a center, especially uh, someone that I anticipate to be on the active roster or to hold one of the roster spots. If you want to bring in somebody on a two-way, great. But like, I personally don't see the point. I think Jonah Bolden is that guy. Uh, maybe I'm just too high on him. But I, I, I liked what I saw from him this year when he was entrusted with regular playing time. Um, I think he's still young, and we we expect a lot out of these guys because we wanted to win this year. But we forget that Jonah Bolden's only in the second year with the team, uh, right? It's his second year. Was that his yeah. rookie? Yeah, this, second year. Sorry. Was his, this was his rookie he, year, but he had been right. Drafted. It was a rookie year, but this is his second year out of um, after being drafted. Um, and we, we don't really look at him that way because we expect everybody to move us closer towards winning a championship. And I think Jonah Bolden can get there. I also think, and I'm I'm just, I think, beating a dead horse here. I think we're the Sixers haven't explored enough. Ben Simmons playing five and just having four guys out there who are smaller than Ben Simmons. So between Ben, Joel... And Jonah Bolden, I don't see why you really need to go out and get someone, especially someone that's going to command a lot of money. If someone wants to come here on a small deal, sure. If you want to get a guy at the end of the second round who you feel like can play five-man minutes but you don't think is necessarily draftable and you want to get him to agree in advance to a two-way, I'm okay with that at like pick 54. But I don't think you need to draft somebody on your roster just to play center. Okay, well, let's go into that. A guy that I that could play center, but I, I see more as a four that can switch a little bit. Um, Arizona State's Zylan Cheatham uh, versus uh, Nebraska's Isaiah Roby. So I think both of those guys could masquerade as like second unit centers. Right. And, if, you know, anybody who's like an old school basketball guy will like vomit hearing that. Um, but they, they really could, and especially I think Cheatham, when his best thing is rim running and rebounding and being able to grab and go. Um, I really like Zylan Cheatham. Uh, obviously, I've no, you know scoring has to be a question mark as the shooting. You have no idea what you're going to get from him in that sense. He may be somebody that's just totally incapable of ever putting the ball in the deck, uh, especially off of self creation. But defensively, he cares. He he's really active and energetic. His personality is awesome. He's just always on, like he's always ready to go, and he's always a positive impact on your team's energy level. I think his rebounding is for real. It doesn't feel like an older senior that like took advantage of younger players and just kind of outgrown manned them. It just felt like he was always revved up and attacking boards. He almost reminded me of like Reggie Evans in that sense. Um, and then you sprinkle in the the fact that when they would handle presses and they would do press break, he was involved in it and not a guy like Lugan Stewart. It was typically him and Remy Martin. So I think he's a unique player. He's not just some like rebounding specialist. And if he was, we wouldn't be talking about him. But I think that's a guy that's very interesting. And I wouldn't call him a center from like a positional classification, right. but he can definitely play some small center. So I, I'm in favor of that. Roby, similar bucket, um, role player type, defender, communicator, good passer, uh, jump shots a question mark as is scoring better athlete than people realize but he's certainly not the athlete that Zylan Cheatham is who is probably you know a top five athlete in this draft um, I would rather have Cheatham I think Roby is going to need some time but I do feel like there's a chance Roby gets to the league and people quickly are like oh he's better than I thought he was he was just on a really bad Nebraska team with low IQ players it was tough to get a sense of how good he was totally different guys by no means comps but like Kyle Kuzma, the same thing happened. Bad Utah team. People couldn't really properly evaluate him. And I think that could be the case for Roby. I'm not going to say it is, but that's a possible outcome. I like that. Uh, I'm excited to learn about who your, guy, who your actual guys are. Because you always, 
the bit is that you have guys that you won't talk about or you'll talk down <laughs> because you can't make it public yet. But I'm starting to read between the lines. We've had you on enough where I can start to I see some some hints of truth in things that you're saying. It's very fun. Uh, <laughs> it's not all a lie. <laughs> right. Uh, can I throw one guy? Yeah, throw a guy. I got a couple more. All right. Uh, Zach Norvell Jr. Uh, is this in a, in a vacuum or for the Sixers? Uh, a little of both. I don't think he's very good. Um, oh, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, then that, I don't think the Sixers would want him then. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't draft him. Um, uh, yeah, I think he's a really bad athlete. Uh, he, he's a try-hard guy. He, he's scrap, yeah. scrappy. He defends. He dies for loose balls. I don't totally trust his three-point shot. I think a lot of his playmaking and you know the, the, the way he was able to kind of function as a really nice secondary ball handler at times in pick and roll, uh, it's not really going to work in the NBA. A very, very low ceiling, in my opinion, and his floor is out of the league. So I'm just not in favor of, of someone like him. If I could get him at the end of the draft and he'd agree to a two-way, sure. I'm just not excited about it. Uh, well, that didn't work. Sure. <laughs> All right, Mike. You want to throw another one at me, Spike? Uh, how about Admiral Schofield? Okay, I like Admiral Schofield. Um, okay. Great body, great run-and-jump athlete, tremendous kid, like A-plus character. He's yep. going to add to your locker room from day one. Um, kind of reminds me of like Shemi Ojale in the sense that like Shemi doesn't get playing time for the Celtics and he's still lifting weights afterwards. He's not just like hitting up Instagram to see who he's going to hang out with. Um, I think Admiral Schofield's going to be an A plus guy. It's just going to take time for him to adjust and to really hone in that three point shot because it's a little bit streaky and it's definitely unconventional. Um, and he's prototypically not really the guy you want from a three six four. He's like two hundred and forty five pounds. Um, he can play some three, some four, but he can't really play two. Um, I think he's going to figure it out, though, because he's just an A-plus kid. He's a better athlete than people realize. He's going to defend. There's a place room in the league. Uh, it's just going to take him some time. Yeah, you buy that guy in the second round more than you would buy, like, Stanley Johnson in the first. Sure. Yeah, I mean, a, a guy like Stanley Johnson who has very low role player IQ, for him, if he's not a scorer, he doesn't really know what to do, and nor is he very motivated. Um, and I don't think a guy like Admiral Schofield is in any way motivated by scoring, even though shooting is one of his best attributes. Yeah. Okay, moving on. Uh, Ole Miss's Terrence Davis versus Tulsa's Daquan Jeffries. Okay, so I think Terrence Davis is really overrated. Um I think he just had a really good, you know, pre-draft showing. Everything after Ole Miss, he did he did a good job. Was he one of the best players at Portsmouth, which is a you know a senior combine that happens in April before Chicago? I didn't think so. I thought he just played hard. Um, and I think sometimes playing hard in an event where everybody plays hard but not like super hard wins people over. Um, I think he definitely fits that mold. Every setting he's been in after college, he's played incredibly hard. But a lot of guys are willing to play hard, and they have more skill level than Terrence Davis. So to me, I wouldn't draft him. I think he's overrated. Could he have a couple cups of coffee in the league? Sure. Could a team take time? And you know, when it gets to like his second or third chance with the team, he figures it out, I guess. I just don't see the upside with him. And I personally think he's overrated, and people just didn't see Ole Miss a ton this past year. So he's he's benefiting a lot from doing a great job in the pre-draft process. Daquan Jeffries, you could say the same. Like a lot of people didn't see his school this year, mid-major guy, even though he played in the American Athletic Conference. I still kind of consider that school a mid-major school. Um, but I think he's got better ball skills than people realize. I think his three-point shot's a little bit better than people realize. 
Um, he measured bigger than I expected. His body's going to look really good with a couple years in the NBA. He's going to be willing to defend. He definitely checks like bare minimum threshold marks on defense and as a three-point shooter, which kind of puts him into that three and D bucket. He's a little bit closer to the bottom of the barrel of that bucket than I think people are making him out to be. But I don't think you need to, like, I think the floor for making it in that mold has never been lower. Um, that actually is a, is a whole nother conversation. I think eventually the three and D bubble is going to burst when we've let any guy into the league who can hit a three-point shot competently and is willing defensively, and then we realize like none of them can dribble or pass or create. Um, but that's a different conversation entirely. I think right now, Daquan Jeffries checks enough boxes, and I have him rated higher than Terrence Davis. Okay. Um, moving on, Florida State's Terrence Mann versus Nevada's Cody Martin. I love Terrence Mann. Terrence Mann is going to play in the NBA for a long time. He gets it. His basketball IQ is great. He defends. He made his team better. Um, the biggest thing with him is when is the jump shot going to become natural? Right now, I think nothing in his shooting mechanics are smooth. He doesn't really understand how to generate flow from your your toes to your fingertips in an organic way. He kind of just throws it up. He made it this year on a small sample size. It's going to take him a little bit of time to become an NBA shooter, but He's, he can handle, he can pass, he raises the maturity level and IQ of those around him. He's an adult. Like, there's just a lot of, uh, of indicators that tell you this guy can play in the league, and if he can ever shoot, he can actually be a spot starter. So I think Terrence Mann, love that guy. Uh, the Sixers have a chance to get him. think it's a no-brainer. Uh, the other guy was Cody Martin. Um I'm a little bit down on players that are of his mold, mm-hmm. which are six, seven, six, eight wings that played point guard in college, and therefore it kind of boosted their value because you saw them play point, and you wonder how much that point matters moving forward. It often doesn't, and they get to the league, and you need them to be able to play without the ball. You need them to be able to find a way to impact as a playmaker without getting ball-dominating touches. And I don't know that that's going to be a smooth transition for Cody. He got a lot better. He almost became even more important to Nevada than Caleb Martin, who was always considered the higher-touted brother. And I give him respect for that. He defends, checks off a lot of boxes in that sense. But, like, I'm just down on that prototype. I think he could be a Wesley Owundu type, but it's by no means a certainty. God, that Nevada—I watched Nevada a lot last year, and that, that offense was just so brutal to watch. They had so many talented guys, and it was just isolation, isolation, like no passing, no visual, no vision. Like it was, it was tough. Yeah, and I think you know that was even with Caleb playing with Cody because Caleb is just his shot selection is insanely bad. Yeah, um, and he played with his brother, who seems to get that. But then again, it's your twin brother, and there's just times where you want to give him the ball and let him do his thing. Um, if he goes to a situation where somebody isn't really like able to control him. And I would say that with quotation marks around it, the way Musselman and Cody Martin were able to, Caleb Martin's going to be, you know, a train wreck. But I think Cody Martin, obviously, in Caleb's shadow a lot of the time, has leapfrogged him as the best prospect in that family. A couple guys who are—so the Sixers obviously aren't going to play a lot of the young guys that they draft. I think I think Shake will be on the team, uh, Zaire, obviously, Jonah, and then probably at least two guys that they draft uh, this year. Um Looking at two guys who are injured and can sort of have a redshirt year with the Sixers with, with potential upside for the future, who do you like between uh, Chumo Keke and Jonte Porter 
And who would you take at, like, say, 20, 24 would be early for them um, just because the Sixers need guys to contribute. But if, if one of the 33 or 34, Jonte and Chuma are there, who do you take and why do you like him? I think if Chuma's there, 33, 34, you take him and run. Uh, he is – it's great value. He would have gone a lot higher if he never got hurt. Um, you redshirt him. You do what you got to do. You get him healthy. He seamlessly fits where the league is going. Switchable defensively. Great hands on defense. Super smart on that end. Um, really good stretch four prospect. Uh, jump shot is a little bit too stationary dependent right now. I'd like to see him have more setup ability off the dribble as a shooter. Um, but that could have came in time if he'd returned for another year. I think his value is low because he's hurt. And I think we didn't get to see this really be like his team. But I do think he was incredibly important to what Auburn was able to do this year. And I think he fits well on this team, and he'd be a great uh, redshirt guy. Jonte, yeah, I'm just—I wasn't a Michael Porter Jr. guy. I'm not a Jonte Porter guy. Um, Very different players, though. No, but they also have similar concerns in that their injury history is terrifying. Um, I never seen Michael Porter Jr. healthy. It's why he dropped out of our lottery. I was worried about him because it impacted the way he played. Like, he never looked healthy on the court. Um, A guy like Jonte, again, tears the ACL. His family has a history of knee injuries. One of his sisters has torn her ACL, I think, like five times. And the other sister had to medically retire at a young age from playing basketball. Like, I just don't know how you could be confident confident that these— that these kids are going to play basketball for a long time. It's just the genes just might not be there. Um, and from a game standpoint, he was always, in my opinion, a funky athlete that you had to bet his brain could overcome the weird athleticism. And if he was healthy, sure, that, that flies because he does have a good basketball sense and he's got a good feel for the game, blocks shots, really smart passer, improved shooter. But like I, the injuries to me are just too damning and I, I would not invest a high pick on him or, or – you know, spend a ton of time worrying about rehabbing him. It doesn't mean at some point that becomes the right pick. I, to me, 33, 34, it's too early. Okay. Spike, I can keep going if you have, if you have one guy you want to jump in with. Mm. Um, I, have I asked about... Oh, the only other guy I didn't ask about was Talon Horton Tucker. Yeah, so he is a very polarizing player. Yep. Um, I think scouts either love him or hate him. They either don't understand him or they think he's incredibly undervalued. Um, he, he's a contradiction in the sense that he can play make, but then he makes like incredibly strange shot selection moments where like he'll step back and launch a three that's way too early in the clock. And then you'll see him throw like a perfectly executed, you know, side pick and roll alley-oop. Um, his body's so weird. His arms are so long. It was even weirder in high school how he's carrying this bad weight and he's kind of chunky. Uh, but he's really young. He's, you know, he's just as young as anybody in this draft. He was not put in a great situation in that, like, most guys in Iowa State thought they were point guards between Wheeler Babb and Halliburton. Halliburton, baby. That's my guy. (laughs) You're a Halliburton guy? Big time. 2020 draft. I'm I'm already taking him, wherever it is. Okay. I'll buy some stock off of you this summer. Um, And then, you know, you had, like, Lindell Wingington, who was a point guard prospect coming out of school and essentially just became a jack at Iowa State. Uh, I, I didn't think it was the best situation to showcase him from start to finish, to build his game from start to finish. But I think he's going to surprise people. Um, he's going to have to prove that he can shoot. He's going to have to get his body better. But his upside is actually really high given where his draft slot is. And I think uh, if you can put him on the right plan, if you can develop him, he's going to be a steal. I don't think he's a bad kid, even though he had the theft incident. Um, everything I've kind of 
heard about and checks out. I think it was just a, a lapse in judgment. Um, and I wouldn't really dock that from and call it, put him into like the bucket of red flags in this draft. Um, okay. How about a guy, we haven't talked about this guy before on the podcast, another smart, like analytics type guy, but maybe doesn't check out athletically. Uh, John Conchar uh, versus Iggy Brasdikas. So, I mean, definitely two different ranges there. Um, Brasdikas is higher, you know, if, he, if one or the other's there, but Brasdikas is the guy. Um, I, I don't love Iggy Brasdikas. Um, I do think he feels like a descendant of like the, uh, like, like Lenish Klejas, Eduardo Naharaz, like Andres Nocioni, like those types. Um, and today's NBA, that might just make him like an undersized four. Um, but his body got a lot better than it did in high school. His skill level is slightly underrated. He plays really, really hard. But it's kind of a mismatchy style that I don't think he's going to have as many mismatches in the NBA. Um, so I don't think his ceiling's very high, but I do think floor-wise, like he could find a role and hang around for a little bit. Uh, John Conchar is 100% an analytics guy. Uh, even before this year, he's always been a stat sheet stuffer. Um, he made Purdue-Fort Wayne relevant this year. Like, they were actually a good team. That's not easy to do. He made those around him better. Went to Portsmouth. Did not play well there at all. Was not even given the ball whatsoever to, to play make, to be a point guard at times. He was almost, like, phased out of the offense, which was really a bummer because I think he's he, he was capable of going to an event like that and really shining in a way that, like, Thomas Walkup did a couple years ago from Stephen F. Austin. Um, I think there's some Ron Baker there. To, to John Conchar. I think he's going to get to the league. He's going to prove he's athletic enough. He can make shots. He's smart. His hands defensively are ridiculous. He, on that end, is like a like golden glove shortstop in the way he's able to just react quickly to stuff. On ball, off the ball, I think he's going to get to the league. He's going to bulk up a little bit, and he's going to be a plus defender, and he's going to hang around for a little bit. I don't know if he's going to be a 10-year pro, but I think he could definitely be like a 5- to 7-year pro. Lewis King, Oregon versus Lou Dort, Arizona State. A couple of Pac-12 guys. Uh, I think it's definitely Dort there. Um, in my opinion, Dort's a little undervalued this year. West Coast does that. You know, Pac-12 having a down year does that. But Arizona State was really good this year. I think Dort gets some credit. Awesome defender. Awesome. Can guard one through three. Um, can guard guys five inches taller than him with no problem. If you watch him against Stanford this year, when he guarded Casey Akpala, who's like 6'8", 6'9", and growing, um, he was able to just make him play small. He was able to neutralize his height with Lou Dort's strength. He's just, he would stonewall him. He would cut off his drives with like just immense force and just a simple like chest move. Um, I think he's going to buy in on that end right away. There's like, there's some hope that he could be like a Marcus Smart type of defender, um, but offensively, he's nowhere near where Smart was coming out of Oklahoma State, who played point guard, who ran a team. Lou Dort can't do that. It wasn't involved in press break. Dribble isn't great. Not really a, a thinker as a passer. Um, but the jump shot is obviously a, a huge talking point. He gets insane arc, like out of the picture arc if you're watching on TV. Um, shoots like a bodybuilder, and that's kind of what he looks like because he's really well put together in that it's just all upper body. He jumps a lot on a shot, but his legs aren't doing anything. He's just jumping, and then all the power is just coming from his wrist, essentially, and his elbow snap, and he just flings it incredibly high. You have to kind of cut that shot apart a little bit, maybe lessen the lift, learn how to create some sort of a flow from, from bottom to top, and also see if you can change the arc. But I'm optimistic in him because I think... The shooters that we have problems with are the guys that 
are afraid to shoot, are unwilling to shoot, get in their own head. He actually doesn't do that. He's pretty confident in his own shot. He shot off the dribble a little bit. He ran off of screens a little bit. He's not just a stationary shooter. So there's upside there. I would definitely take him. And I, I, I think he's a great target for the Sixers at 24 um, over Liu King. Liu King, to me, didn't get to show everything he could do at Oregon. Um, got hot as a shooter late in the year. And the narrative on him became that he got a lot better. I thought he just got healthy because he came in off of a meniscus injury, was rusty, and I thought he just made shots. So does that mean he evolved this year? I, I don't think so. I actually think he was more interesting if you saw him in high school and at the AAU level. Um, but like he's 6'8", he's athletic, he can shoot. If those things check out, there's a place for him. Um, I just don't know if the other things he did in high school, defensively, ball handling, passing, are ever going to materialize. I hear that. And we take one final break to talk about our sponsor, SeatGeek. SeatGeek, Mike. SeatGeek. It's the only way to buy tickets to sporting events, the only way to buy tickets to concerts, because instead of having to go to five different sites and find out how much everyone charges and then how much their service fees are, you can just go to one site, SeatGeek, no confusion, and... If you don't know whether a price is good, they take care of that for you. They, it's color coded each deal to tell you uh, whether it's a good deal or not. A good deal or not. And Mike, great news! Even if you're colorblind, um, there's an actual deal score. And actually, if you don't know numbers under that, it says whether it's a good deal or a great deal or an average deal or a uh, bad deal. Do you think about everything? And now, yeah. And now they, they they've covered. They have you covered. Um, and now, now that uh, it's pretty much baseball season, as far as going to games, if you want to go to a Phillies game, uh, I decided, Val and I decided last minute, we wanted to go to the Phillies. Instead of doing anything else, you just go to SeatGeek, uh, you figure out where you want to sit, and it spits out the best prices, and then you just download it right onto your phone. It's, it's, it's the only way to buy tickets. You can forget about every other website, forget about every other app. SeatGeek is the only place to go. And better news because SeatGeek likes us and they love you, they want to give you $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Use our promo code. Download the SeatGeek, SeatGeek app today. Use promo code RTRS for $10 off your first purchase. That's promo code RTRS for $10 off your first purchase. Do it. SeatGeek. 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 Now back to Elon. Uh, let's move on to international guys for a sec. Oh, yeah. Um, there you go. I don't want... Another Anzes Pachesnik, who I do pronounce his name different every time, and I truthfully <laughs> don't mind it. Uh, the Sixers' ob- odds are we'll draft at least one of them and stash him. Who do you like? Who's good? It feels like a weak class for international guys outside of Badatze. Well, you don't want another Pachesnik, but would you want another Matthias Lasort? Uh, I don't even. I mean, he really <laughs> has. He really has gotten a pass. It's really nice air cover for Lasort because of uh, Pachesnik's is just egregious. The, tr- the trade up for him. Oh God, I, Elon, w- would you would you be remiss if you didn't ask Mike about Lasort? Would you be remiss? Is there any remiss here? Well, are you, are, there's no way, Mike. You're not a Lasort guy. No, 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 never, 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 never. Oh, okay, <laughs> that, that, that that guy's not good at basketball. Um, I mean, like, jo- but, uh, he's like Joey Dorsey, basically. <laughs> that that's a disservice to Joey. Dorsey. I know. Yeah, you're right. He he's closer to like Will Coleman from Memphis. You remember him? No, actually, I don't. <laughs> do a wow. deep, do a deep a dive moment. after this. Okay. Um, <laughs> Will Coleman is like dead man's Joey Dorsey. Um, okay. So what was the question? Just international international guys. guys. Okay. Could, could target. 
Yeah, it's it's a weak international draft if you just go based off of previous years. Um, I think it's probably a toss-up whether people have uh, Goga Batadze higher than Sekou Dumbaya. Um, I think it's between those guys. Uh, different teams will have either guy ranked higher. Neither will be there when the Sixers pick at 24. For sure. But Luka, Luka Samanich could be there. Um, and I don't hate him at that pick. It's a little bit early. I'd love to get him at 33 or 34. I don't think he'll be there at 33 or 34. I think he's going in the first. Um, to me, he's a lot further away than like Sekou and Goga are, but his upside might be sneaky high. And I think the stuff he was able to do at the youth level, the the, the passing, the way he was able to, to really kind of like be a fulcrum offensively for Croatia and youth events, um, we haven't gotten a chance to see that. And that still might be lying dormant there. I think he just embraced being the young role player on a veteran team. And to him, that meant playing hard, trying to rebound, being energetic, running the floor, not trying to do too much. But it never felt to me that he was like afraid to do anything. It just it just kind of looked like he understood, I'm the young guy and this is my role. And I think he's going to get into the league. His body's already filling out, which is huge plus because he could not have remained as weak as he looked years ago when he really resembled a coat hanger. And now he's starting to fill out a little bit. He's going to get to the league. He's going to fill out more. His jump shot, I think, is is coming along. He's got good size. You see him as a five? No, I think he's a four five, actually. Um, He could play both. doesn't really matter. He's certainly not a three. Um, But I think a lot of that will will be dictated by what his body looks like. If he keeps bulking up, then he's probably a five. But, like, I think there's, like, some Jonas Jerebko there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is essentially, like, an oversized four today. Um, but I like him. I think he's a nice he's a nice target. The thing about him is Sixers fans will probably look at him and say, yeah, great target at 33-34 because we could stash him. I actually don't want to stash Luka because it's not that I think he's ready necessarily. I just wanted to learn the game here now. I want him in a pro weight room. I don't want him to put on the wrong kind of weight. And I want him to start learning the role he'd play here and not the role he's playing in Europe. So, and I don't know if there's the roster spot for him on this team. What about like uh, later in the round, like a Servetus? I, I don't really think any of the guys in the second round are even close to ready. Like Servetus is years away. So if you wanted to draft and stash him, sure, the upside could be there. In a couple of years, he, you know, if he was, was then put into a draft again, he would certainly, I think, uh, outplay where you draft him if you, if you can see him develop. Really good shooter, good ball skills. Like he's an okay athlete, good size. Um, like OBC, like I wouldn't draft. I don't think, I think he's kind of a, I don't want to say he's a fake prospect, but he's just like really far away and he should have, you know, withdrew. Um, Didi, the guy from Brazil who played in the Hoop Summit, uh, that's a guy people kind of like because he was one of the better players from the Hoop Summit that people weren't expecting to be. He's I think it's just a lo- his real name is uh, Luzada, right? Yeah, Luzada. Everybody calls him Didi. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think it's a really weak draft, so we're just trying to find guys in the second round to, to draft and stash, and I think that's the kind of year it's going to be. You're going to see those guys get picked and stashed, and then, but it wouldn't surprise me if like if Didi was like a, like a Cordinier, like where... You get him, and it's like, oh, okay, this guy's not really good at anything, and he's too weak, and his game doesn't make sense for the NBA. I do. Um, I did like Cordinier a lot. Yeah, I mean, I, I never saw it, but like Cordinier is a guy that could get you excited in the, that he's athletic, he can make shots, he's got just enough size. Um, I, I don't think there's anybody in the second round um, that is that exciting. I think a lot of these guys are just getting propped up because of that. It, it kind of reminds me of like um, Elio Kobo, and that there just wasn't anybody else, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Uh, what about the guy? This is sort of a weird, weird case, but the guy who the the Warriors took for their G League team, whose name I'm not going to try to pronounce, but it looks like Small Dick. <laughs> we could just call him that. <laughs> um, he, he so he's an interesting guy because he kind of came out of nowhere. He was not super productive um, representing Serbia at youth events, but he also played behind like a much more highly touted prospect. And uh, I think people were surprised at how capable he looked in the G League at as an 18-year-old. Um, he he kind of got better as the season went on. He looked confident, you know, confident and competent from all three levels. He's a smart player around the rim. He's got head fakes. He's got a really good pump fake. I thought he should, he was going to shoot better based on like what I saw from his jump shot early in the year. But the three three point percentage was not as good as it seemed. My concern with him is he's just kind of stuck between positions, mm-hmm. like. I want him to be a five, but he's the size of a four. At the four, I don't know who he defends, and his skill level isn't as clean. Kind of reminds me of uh, Willie Aran Gomez, and I think that, that that could be like his career outcome as well. Okay, and that's Alan Smelagic, but it looks like small dick, <laughs> and that's fun, more fun to say. Um, yeah, I'm sure that would catch on for people. For sure. Uh, sort of got a couple guys later in the draft, uh, Yale's Mie Oni versus uh, Michigan's Jordan Poole. Jordan Poole all the way, um, underrated, really good shot creator, smooth game. Three-point shot is is better than I think people think it is. Um, his dribble moves and his setup package are, I think, as as good as anyone's in this draft. Like, he can really create for himself off the dribble. Um, athleticism leaves something to be desired. It's, you know, you wonder how he's going to defend at the next level, um, and he could be streaky more than proficient and efficient from three, but I really like him. I think he's undervalued. There's obviously a world where he's just like Jordan Crawford and he's not good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he's better than Mie Oni. Um, Mie is a guy that he he kind of tested freakishly in Chicago, and I think that was a little bit unexpected. You always thought he had the size and the athleticism, but to, to test as well as he tested, I didn't see that coming. I think that kind of gave him a little bit of a bump. But like, when you watched Yale over the past few years, he always felt like he he was capable of being a prospect. He was capable of being an NBA player. But, like, he didn't impose his will enough. He was too unassuming. He would disappear for long stretches. And even this year, Yale was good, but it always felt like it was Alex Copeland's team and not Mieoni's team. And you want an NBA prospect on an Ivy League team to dominate the Ivy League and to kind of dominate his own team. Now, maybe that just means Mia Oni's really going to embrace being a role player. But I, I think you got to have a certain mentality also to beat out all the other guys that are gunning for those same role player spots, especially if you go undrafted. And I'm not positive Mia Oni has it. I would give him a chance because he's got size. He can play make. He's athletic. Like he checks off the eye test scores, but he might be missing something in the mentality department. Do you think, who do you think Jordan Poole defends at uh, in the NBA? You probably hide him a little bit. He just defends the the worse or backcourt guy. Um, I think he's going to struggle in that sense. But some people might look at him and say he can play point guard because I just want the ball in his hands and mm-hmm. Beeline did that a lot. So in that case, I guess he's got size to play point, but that's something he's going to struggle with for sure. Um, one guy, okay, let me ask about Carson Edwards because he's a guy that I'm going to have, uh, I'm going to give a lottery grade to. Um, I just think his the level of pull-up shooting and shooting off the catch uh, is an elite skill that uh, not there's not many elite skills in this draft. And I think when you, you have uh, Carson Edwards that uh, 
he's somebody that could change the game. Um, and I think him grading out or his wingspan grading out to be, I think it was a six six wingspan was uh, was good to see in that he's you know much longer than a lot of those other guys in that in that area. Um, and I think that at Purdue there was just not much else going on offensively, and so he had to create everything. And so I think once the court opens up, I think he can be a better passer, um, especially with if you know it happens to be with the Sixers. I think things will open up with, for him in, in a way that uh, you know they would for JJ. And JJ is obviously not a great not a creative passer, but is sort of capable. Um, and if, if Carson Edwards is there at 24, I'd, I'd certainly consider it for the Sixers. What do you think about Carson Edwards? I've always been slow to embrace him dating back to previous seasons. Like it, when I first saw him at Purdue, I thought this kid's going to be a prospect. I'm really excited. Um, he's going to be an NBA prospect and he's got the, the mentality, the moxie, the, the swagger. Like I love everything about him. But then he just really became a shooting guard. He became a, a six-foot-tall shooting guard. There was really no point guard development. There was no uh, ability to progress through reads, to keep your dribble alive when you're being pressured. Like, I don't trust him in that capacity whatsoever. So the question is, can he become an elite enough shot maker to kind of overcome the fact that he can't play any point guard right now offensively? And to me, that's what holds him back from just being like the next J.J. Barea or Patty Mills. Like, that those guys played point guard when they were in college and actually played point guard, and they could do that in the league. And I really think Carson Edwards is a straight two. Um, could that mean he's utilized in a way that like Yogi Ferrell has been at times during his career? Maybe, but again, Yogi Ferrell played point guard in college. So I do think if he can appease that concern for me, then he moves up considerably. Um, but I also don't think his, his setup package and the moves that he has and the way he creates space for himself is that dynamic or complex. I think he's just a tough shot maker and he's really good at making tough shots. And when you're six foot, those shots get a lot tougher in the NBA. And that's just not a recipe necessarily for like immediate success. Um, could he be just like another Isaiah Cannon? I think that's possible. Um, I think Oh, that's exciting. That's tough to hear. I do. No, think no, he, no. He, he had a big four point play against the Warriors a few years ago. I don't know if you remember. That, I Mike. remember it. Enormous. <laughs> okay, I just, just he had, that's the guy's got stones. That's all I'm saying. Spike, do you live for these like random Sixers comps? Uh, well, if you're gonna mention the guys that I like, for sure, uh, you know. Uh, but Mike and I have very different, um, very different views on Isaiah Cannon. You say another Isaiah Cannon, my eyes light up. But well, I would not Mike. I would argue Isaiah Cannon is like just good enough to play in the NBA, but doesn't need to play in the NBA. Um, <laughs> that's a, that's a, a good way to describe it. And I think Carson Edwards is better than that, but like he feels closer to that than Berea or Mills or a, certainly like an Isaiah Thomas type. Um, I, I, I would have no problem betting on him because he checks off things I like. He, he won in college. He, he did get better as a scorer. And I think he's got the right Wiring, He's really confident in himself, and he's like they got this bulldog mentality. Um, but again, you're betting on a six-foot guy to continue making shots that will get only tougher. And to me, that's why he's not like a lock first-rounder, um, and he would be if he played point guard. Is he good? Does, do the, are there like character concerns with him, or does, does he check all those boxes in terms no, of like a good kid? Good, good kid, like good kid. I mean, he's just he's just really on the court. He's just like almost overconfident in his ability, but you need to be at that size for the style of play he has. Um, but he's a good kid, like like no problems there. Okay, last last one because Spike's yelling at me. Um, 
Well, I, you can ask me about all of them. It's just we're a ninety-minute pod, Megan. Come again, on! So I, I think Mike is is intentionally picking players that I say better than or worse than, and then he's like using some sort of a formula to to create my victory. <laughs> That's what I'm. We're all about it. And remember, this was the original Hinky podcast, so don't don't doubt that we have some sort of metric right. uh, and algorithm that can figure Absolutely. that out. Absolutely. Uh, one one guy who's I think off most people's big boards, but I, I liked watching him all year because I watched I, I watched Tennessee a lot. Jordan Bone. Um, He's crazy athletic. He's he's long. He can hit pull up jumpers. Why is he not getting more more uh, press? Well, I think some people view him as like a fake point guard. Um, that he was able to play point guard on that team with guys that have like a professional mindset in Grant Williams and Admiral Schofield, and that he kind of missed out on that senior year of like it being his team, showing that he could play without them. Um, but I do think he is someone that deserves a look at like pick 60 as a two-way target, uh, priority undrafted free agent, super fast, understands also how to stop, which is not something every fast guy knows how to do, yeah. um, which gives him a really nice mid-range game. He's got a nice mid-range pull-up, really good runner and floater package there. Um, I think he's going to be a jet end-to-end, somebody that's going to excel in transition. But men- mentally, I'd like to see his like his decision-making, his ability to handle pressure, his ability to run half-court offense, evolve and grow. Um, but I think he, he warrants a chance, like absolutely. But the, by no means is he a sure thing, and I think he can't be. It, it, he's closer to, like, the jail and hands of the world who check off physical boxes, but mentally you don't know if they're ready to run an NBA team than, like, the Ty Jeromes of the world who you kind of know exactly what you're getting. Yeah. There's just interesting guys because both Carson Edwards and... Jordan Bone were nominal point guards on elite college offenses. And so I I know that, you know, Grant Williams especially was responsible for a lot of that. But um, I just I wonder if there's there's more more there than than uh, most draft people are giving him credit, because if they can succeed that well, it seems like that there's a there's a track record of, of those guys succeeding in the NBA. Yeah, I mean, for sure. And it's, you know, he, he deserves credit for playing point guard and learning how to do it on the fly and doing it around those guys and, and that team being really good. Like, he definitely deserves credit. Um, and maybe I am personally just anchored in the fact that, like, I wanted to see that kid return and I probably expected him to return for most of the year. And so you're thinking, this is really interesting to see if this is part one of next year being part two. And then when you don't get that part two and you're expecting to get it, now your evaluation is kind of anchored in that original belief, and you're evaluating like an incomplete player. Yeah. All right. I'm done. I could keep going, but I'll finish. Okay. All right. Before you go, Elon, we have to uh, put you through the jigsaw, and um, this is when we I give you a an either-or question. Mike has to answer as well. They're both bad options, but you have to answer which one you would take. Okay. Are you prepared? Yeah, let's do it. Play. I will play this game. Game play. I will play this game. I miss you. I will play this game. I- I'm worried. Play. I will play this game. And after the game, they were interviewing him, and they said, how does it feel to win the ultimate game? And he said, if it's the ultimate game, why are they playing it again next year? All right. Um, who answers first, Mike? Do you want to answer, or do you think Elon answers? Elon's the expert. Okay. Here's your two choices. Either you can never sleep past 5 p.m., you're not allowed to. So if you go to bed at 2 a.m., you have to get up at 5 a.m. Your body reacts um, as your body would normally react. It's not like uh, you feel fine waking up at 5 
you know, you have to get up at 5 a.m. every day for the rest of your life, or when you eat at all times, you have to hold your utensils like a baby, meaning like you would make a fist and put the fork in um, like you're holding like uh, handlebars on a bike. So that's how you hold your fork, that's how you hold your spoon, that's how you hold your knife. So I'm first? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, Biggest I question like of your food. life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is easy. Uh, I like food way too much to eat food that way. So, uh, plus, I mean, I have a nine-month-old now, so I'm already up most days pretty early. It's the 5 a.m., it's, it's easy. Yeah, so now for me it's easy as well, but Mike, I know, is not really a 5 a.m. waker-upper. So, Mike? I'm, I actually wake up early compared to most people. You're just on a three-hour time okay. difference and also wake up right. at four inexplicably. Um, but I, would, I, think I'd go, I think I'd go wake up early also. I, I would start to okay. die because I, I'd have a tough time going to bed at a reasonable hour also. So my, I would be getting like five hours of sleep a night and, and just start withering away. But um, I also like food too much. So I, I think I'd have to go five and, and, and just get in a routine. Well, babies like food. You know, yeah, be able to eat food. But it's a dexterity thing. They don't have a choice. Yeah. <laughs> Always talking about on-court terms. Dexterity. Can we finish? Coordination. All of it. Yeah. But the, the um, thing about waking up at 5 a.m. that you don't realize is a, is a byproduct, is like a, an effect, is you just can't stay up as late. You don't have the yeah. energy to. So, like, I, I used to be a night owl. I would be up to, like, 3 or 4 in the morning. And there's nights where I'm like, oh, I'm going to be up till 3 tonight. But I woke up at, like, 5.30, and I'm just, like, asleep by 10. You, you don't yeah, have a choice. I, it just saps your energy by 10 o'clock. Good eval. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a 4, 4.30 guy, So, and I, I know the, the pain. My wife does as well as I fall asleep at 9.08 every night on the couch in the middle of whatever show she wants me to watch. So, um, Hey, dude, thank you again for coming on and being so generous with your time. Um, again, evhoops.com. And is that where they should go if they want to sign up for the uh, Scout U uh, crash course this summer? If they want to do the Scout U crash course, you can just shoot me an email. Make it easy. Um, you can shoot an email to scoutu at evhoops.com or check me out on Twitter. It's in my bio, at Alon Vino. Um, but, yeah, that's what we got cooking this summer. Um, we got to get those T-shirts made. Isn't that a project we were doing last year, the official Scout T-shirts? Oh, we can do that. Do you, do you want that? I mean, we, not everybody likes us. Well, <laughs> no, I mean, if, if we can raise money for something cool, I'm for it. Oh, okay. All right. Well, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> okay. You know, pe- people have regretted their associations with us. Now, many, our sponsors love the association, but there are a, a select few. <laughs> um, so, all right, great. Yeah, sure. We can move ahead with that. Well, we got a lot of time between now and the beginning of the season. We'll talk about it after, after the podcast, I guess. Yeah, for let's, sure. Let's, right, let's thanks, have you buddy. back on after the draft to talk about how you think they did. Okay. You got it. All right. Sounds good, pal. Thanks, man. Thank you. Hi, Mike. Um, we will uh, be back this week with our big boards, Dude. which I have been working on. We, this is the first time we've done it at the end of the draft cycle rather than the beginning. So big, big change. Did you want to, you um, never talked about the lottery party uh, final numbers, donation wise? Yeah, I did. You did? Yeah, we did it like two pods oh. ago. It was like 16 grand. I must have checked yeah. out. Yeah, <laughs> we did it right in the beginning. We raised uh, six between uh, our donation and uh, Xfinity Live did a donation as well. We raised sixteen thousand dollars for uh, coded by kids in the Providence Animal Center. So very exciting. Um, both were proud to work with um, this year. So yeah. saved a lot of dogs, taught a lot of kids how to be entrepreneurs. Thank you to everybody who showed up and helped. Yeah. Uh, did you want to talk <laughs> three minutes about the finals, or did you not care? 
Uh, no, we can talk about it. And Alon, if you're still listening, um, you can either leave this up or close it. We'll be good. Um, you can. You don't have to um, stay sitting there. You're good if you want. You're more than welcome to listen. Uh, sure, we can talk about the finals. It was a weird, a weird finals um, with everything that happened. The, uh, like, I, I remember years ago before Steve Kerr was a coach and it was when he was a, uh, a color guy, he was on with Simmons. And I remember him saying when he was there for the Bulls three-peat that if, if Michael Jordan was there the next year, that they would not have gone to the finals because of how long, like how excruciating um, three straight finals appearances sure. was, you know, and just in terms of the number of games, even as good as they were. And when you think about the Warriors going to five straight, most notably Clay, and then there's KD who went to three straight. And um, LeBron going to eight uh, straight Steph, before that. Right, LeBron going to eight straight. Uh, Curry going to five straight. I'm just not surprised that they broke down in the in the way that they yeah. did, and um, it really does show you how a top heavy roster um, can be tricky. You know, when you look at the other guys that are on the court, you're like, wait a minute, none of these guys are good. Um, that you better make sure that if you're a top heavy roster, that your top guys are are awesome and well rested. Yeah, and well rested as well. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I. Once the series was over, I was happy for Toronto um, and and for Canada as a whole. I think that was just a cool a cool moment, and for every, anybody to get there. I remember, you know, obviously how cool it was when the Eagles won the title. Um, it's just a you know crazy feeling, and so good for them. They did not deserve it. It was the luckiest shot of all time, and I don't care anymore. You know, I don't care if it sounds like loser shit because we lost in the most loser shit way possible. It shouldn't have happened. That was the crazy that four times from the side with crazy arc, a guy by the way who doesn't shoot the ball with any arc whatsoever. So it was totally different from his regular shot. It just I it might never leave me. It might never leave me. I'm not as mad about it anymore. I don't see it when I close my eyes as much. But I know you disagree, but the Sixers were the better team in that series. Embiid was a plus 90 and a plus, you know, 100 some in the whole playoffs. If they had even a remotely competent oh, backup center, we go again. they win going away. And uh, it's frustrating. Still should have won anyway. But just makes me hungry for next year. And I hope I hope they run it back because I think they are very capable of winning a title next year. Absolutely. Especially the West is wide open. Who knows what's going to happen with Kawhi? Who knows who Milwaukee's going to be able to keep Boston imploding before our eyes? Um uh, I just I do not think they should run it back. I think you could get better even at less money. I think you could do uh, or they, they should they it would be worth a swing at doing um, better and less uh, cornering you into stuff than Tobias and Reddick. But uh, we'll see. And I, I have real, you know, I was talking. Do you wanna, with, you, wait, uh, so you want to keep Jimmy and not Tobias and Reddick? Well, I, I like I am I'm so non-committal on any of this, right? Like I can, and it's not my way. You know, it's not my way. I I feel like I don't know enough about the Jimmy thing because I I think about him and Ben, and I just Jimmy Butler is obviously a, a, to me a better player than Tobias Harris. I think Tobias Harris is good, but I think Jimmy Butler has the ability to be really, really good. I I really like I think about. And I've said this before. I think about how Ben Simmons has always talked about himself as a basketball player. And I just don't believe 
that he is he thinks he's Draymond Green and he's going to want to play off ball all year um, or even play a lot off ball. Uh, I thought he did it uh, in the playoffs and I thought it was good that he did it. And I, I think he should be commended for that. But I just don't think that's who he wants to be. And J- Butler was so weird when he did not get all the on ball stuff he wanted. And I, I, you know, what's weird that we haven't heard at all. It's like there's been no talk at all, like zero, not even a rumor or a Sixers are preparing to offer zilch on the Simmons extension. Now, I know it can't happen until the middle of July, but that is a right. It's not October. It's July. They can offer it to him. Um, isn't that a little weird? I don't know. I, I think it's no. probably just there's other things to take care of first. Yeah. Hmm. Um, I, so I don't really know. I, I think um, I would rather have then then bringing back all three guys and when i'm talking about reddick and uh and harris and butler i think i'd rather settle on the one that i believe in most and use and and try to be more flexible with the other things i did and i just um i i don't believe in a four max guy thing when like three of them are between 20 and 30 in the NBA. I, I, it's going to make it too hard, I think, to fill out a full roster. I could be wrong, and, and I definitely think if they brought everybody back, it wouldn't be shocking to me if they were in the finals next year at all. I, I just think I, I think there's a better way to do it. I don't know what it is. I, like, and it's hard to offer alternatives because I don't know what we can get anybody for, right? I mean, that's just sort of dreaming. Um, but that's the idea I would move forward with, I think. Yeah. I don't know. So, I, I the, we'll the what's behind door number three of free agency to me is not appealing. I just feel like mm-hmm. we've been burned too many times before, and I think it's easier to keep the good guys you have that have been that have excelled in in spurts together, figure it out, work guys at the fringes, find you know twenty four year old. G League players or international players who who have gotten better and just like, you know, bring them in for like low cost um, and ha- and have them be helpful role players and, and work the, the guys you draft into the system. And, and even though if you're a top heavy roster, make sure you, you know, are giving the young guys enough time to succeed early on in the season. Well, um, then it you, is. You're literally find, asking them. Then it, sorry, then it is to find. You're literally like, asking uh, them to. The like. Here's a couple guys that can combined give you what Jimmy or Tobias gives you. And it's like, oh, well, you're just not as good. And you're not going to play nine, ten guys in the playoffs anyway. So those guys end up being worthless. And you're just kind of like a worse team, sort of the way Milwaukee was. Um, maybe. But I, uh, I, I like I'm not I, I, I understand and, and can certainly like I, I get what you're saying. I, I don't think it's a bad argument. Like, I don't I don't think it's a an atrocious way to go. I, but I, I think what you're asking them to do, and I guess what I'm asking them to do too, is do something that they haven't been able to do in three years. And like, hey, let's just go find guys. Like they've been miserable at it. But three and, years, why um, go back further than that, right? When's the last time the Sixers had like a good free agency haul? 
Oh yeah, no, no. I'm, but I'm even talking through drafting and through, um, and and through. Um, I'm not. I'm not talking about free agency. I'm talking about you're, you're talking about work the margins and get rotation sure. players. Well, all they've done is fail yeah. in that in that way. So you're talking about in the. I mean, um, they drafted Chamet, and then he he was immediately helpful. Even though I didn't I didn't love him out of the draft, and it turns out that he was incre- incredibly helpful and, and brought a uh, near all star level player here. Well, good good thing they they. Uh, they got rid of him in his $2 million salary a year for the mm-hmm. next four years. It's great. Uh, okay, well, we will do big boards this week and then draft pod on Thursday. Boy, it's getting, uh, we're getting down to it. And then fucking, oh, probably a pretty interesting week of free agency for us. So, There's a, my, um, my, uh, the show that I'm on, Perfect Harmony on NBC mm-hmm. coming this fall, um, is set in Kentucky. And so there's, you know, me and my writing partners pitching nonstop like basketball stuff. Because they're like UK fans, um, and some a Ricky fan li- emailed my boss. He apparently, he went to high school with her, and or like fa- sent a Facebook message saying like, "Tell Mike, tell Mike Levin to like say why the Sixers should draft Tyler Hero or something like that." Because he, he went to Kentucky. <laughs> so the Sixers drafting someone from Kentucky would help my show, I think, in in a sense of sort of keeping uh, brand synergy together. So that's uh, that's what I'm rooting for for my personal benefit well i still look back at colangelo's draft and i'm convinced he took tlc and furkan Korkmaz <laughs> because of us so don't, and then we loved him don't for don't it. uh yeah yeah <laughs> we did we did it was a it was a great honeymoon the honeymoon That's period right. uh all right we'll talk to you later this week uh are you down with ttp yeah, you know like face we are the murderers there that with the jail and we murdered the murderers there then with the hell and discovered the devil delivered some hurt and despair used to have power to push now i smoke pounds of the push holy i'm burning the bush now i give a fuck about none of this shit two runner over and out of this bitch step into the spotlight Bumpers and downers get done. I'm in a rush to be numb. Dropping a thousand ain't much. Come from the clouds on a missile.